0: Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socalo Radio, playwright and director Luis Valdez founder and artistic director of El Teatro Campesino, sits down with Túcidad Magazine's editor-in-chief, Oscar Garza. By turn soulful and humorous, Valdez tells of his theater company's remarkable beginnings, the history of Zoot Suit, the groundbreaking play he wrote 30 years ago, and the defining incident that's left a hole in his chest for 62 years, a hole he fills with stories and plays and poems. The conversation encompasses wide terrain. I think that ultimately what we're all doing, Valdez' remarks, is research on the nature of the human being and the nature of life itself and the nature of life and death. Recorded before a live audience at the Barnsdall Art Park as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Oscar Garza.
1: Thank you.
2: Welcome. I have to uh, confess something first. Okay, a ver... (laughs) <laughs> I've always had a little bit of envy about you Ooh, okay. because I think you're the... My only, height, right? You're <laughs> the, I think you're the only Chicano with a nicer voice than mine on the planet. <laughs> of- <laughs> okay. We're going to spend a fair amount of time talking about Zoot Suit. This is the, the occasion really to do this. Was, is the, that is the 30th anniversary of the place premiere in, in Los Angeles. There was a, um, a reunion of the cast Yesterday there was a reunion of the cast at Pomona College. In in case you don't know, Pomona College has mounted a a production, a student production of Zoot Suit, directed by Alma Martinez, who was who's now on the faculty there, but who was an original cast member of the show. That's right,
1: and in the film too. And in the film. Yeah.
2: And uh, yesterday they had a uh, reunion of the original cast. It was quite an event, and Luis presided over the uh, (laughs) (laughs) the uh, the event, the ceremonies. How did you feel yesterday? How did all that did it feel like 30 years to you?
1: Well, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, I, I'll contradict myself and say what I've said several times lately, actually. The long 43 years of the Teatro Campesino history has been like one long day to me. You know, So it's really 43 years of one very long, sustained day. And uh, yesterday was one of the very special days, I think, in the 43-year cycle, where the feeling was family, and literally, because many of these people uh, were there with their families, and uh, they feel like family. We've all been through a lot, and uh, in 30 years, I mean, you mark a whole transition in everyone's life, and you go through literally births and, and marriages and deaths and divorces and all of this. and that is uh, evident I think in people's faces when you see them again so there was a lot of humanity uh, in the faces of those members and some of them are quite famous now you've seen them in many many movies and you continue to see them uh, weekly on television series and some of them were even too famous to show up (laughs) Uh, (laughs) last night so uh, so that's the reality of it
2: (laughs) I'm not going to name names
1: (laughs) But all in all, every time I run into all of them, they seem very real, uh, and maybe that's what qualifies it as family, because when you connect with your family, you're at a point in your life where you're very real, you seem very real, and they're real to you, and this is the feeling that I get when I see the Zoot Suit people.
2: At the heart of Zoot Suit is an incident that took place in Los Angeles. What year was the Sleepy Lagoon? Uh, 1942. 1942 was the incident itself. Maybe if you could just briefly tell us what what happened at Sleepy
1: Lagoon uh, on that evening. In the spring of 1942, of course, there was the roundup of Japanese Americans. It was uh, the first months of World War II, and so there was quite a bit of nervous tension on the West Coast, throughout the West Coast. There was fear that the Japanese Army or the Navy was going to invade, so I give it that. There was war hysteria in the air. Consequently, I mean, some people felt that the solution was to round up all the minorities, starting with the Japanese. And then after they were gone, uh, the tension in the press, especially in the Hearst press particularly, shifted to these young Mexican Americans in the streets of Los Angeles, wearing uh, very distinctive clothing, which was essentially the zoot suit, what you could call them drapes. And of course, it's the oversized pants, you know, the baggy pants, uh, pegged at the, at the ankle, the fingertip coat. In some cases, with or without hat, but in any case, it was an, a uniform of youth that came out of the whole jazz swing era. This was the uniform of the dance hall, basically, whether you're talking about the Palladium here or the Ro- Roseland in New York, it doesn't matter. It was, uh, it was what the young men wore to be able to swing dance. And by contrast, the young ladies wore the short skirt, you know, the miniskirt. And so, both of them, uh, both those two sides of the same equation were were considered to be quite dangerous, you know, on the verge of criminality in the eyes of uh, respectable society. I put that in quotations. But the the fact is that uh, in 1942 then, with the nervousness and the attention shifting to these young men on the streets, it became an issue of the war. It became an issue of patriotism that these young men were called draft dodgers and uh, of course, LA was then the, the major shipping point for all of our armed forces heading into the Pacific. It was one of the crossroads with San Diego and all the bases were full of, uh, of a lot of young men. Uh, many of them also, I must say, Chicanos and Hispanics. You know, we did our share. Ken Burns notwithstanding, you know, we were there. <laughs> and uh, so there was a, a lot of activity. And, and anyway, all of that turned into hostility. And the police were the first to react, uh, spurred on by the press, the Hearst press again. In the case of the sleepy lagoon mystery that a young man was found dead at a ranch outside in the city of commerce basically what was the city of commerce at an old reservoir that was the playground for a lot of young people again because of the romance of the era and, and harry james had released a hit song called sleepy lagoon uh, the reservoir was called the sleepy lagoon but it was the makeout joint you know for a lot of boys and girls and the gangs went out there the plunges by the way was a swimming hole the plunges were segregated at the time i remember that as a child that, uh, you know, if you were Mexican, if you were black, you couldn't go to the swimming pool any day. We had our own special day, usually the day before they drained the pool, you know? <laughs> but in any case, uh, the Chicanos went and swam at this reservoir and at night, it became a lover's lane. One night, uh, there was a, an altercation between two rival gangs, the 38th Street Gang being one of them. There was another group from Downey and a young man was left dead, Jose Diaz, turned out to be just a migrant, young migrant farm worker because uh, it was rural at the time. But as a result of that, the city cracked down and all of, there were 600 young men and women arrested in a sweep across the city uh, with the result that 22 members of the 38th Street gang were put on trial, on a mass trial for the murder of this uh, Jose Diaz. It was, the evidence was all circumstantial, nothing. There were no witnesses. There wasn't even a murder weapon that was identified. There was a blunt force injury on the head and that was it. Uh, there was even suspect he may have been run over In any case, uh, what happened is that 22 young men were put on the mass trial. They all had a right to, each of them, every one of them had a right to an individual trial by the constitutional rights, but they they didn't ask for it. So it became a big sensational trial and uh, the boys had to be put all in a block. They weren't allowed to change clothes or cut their hair, you know, for the three months they were in jail. So they kept looking worse and worse and more and more disreputable. And the transcript, the trial transcript, which I read, 6,000 pages of court transcript, which I read as part of the research for the play, reads like a comic book. It was incredible what the judge was saying, a, a man by the, the, the name of Charles Fricky. I changed that to F.W. Charles in the play. But Fricky, Judge Fricky was the dean of, uh, of California law with Alarcon. He wrote the, the book on California law. Anyway, he presided over a clownish, Trial that violated the, the boys' civil rights, that did not allow them due process. And so. Uh, in the end, how many were convicted? Twelve were convicted of first and second degree murder, sent to San Quentin, three of them for life. And so then the Sleepy Lagoon Defense Committee came into action, right. head by, headed by Carrie McWilliams, and then eventually by Alice McGrath, right. who was there yesterday at yes. 91, 91 years 91 old. Years old. Yeah. And so then uh, they went to prison, and the following year, they were in prison for two years, San Quentin. In 1943, all that tension kept building and it exploded on the streets of LA when the sailors out of Chavez Ravine boarded 20 taxicabs and invaded the East Side Barrios. People were beaten and uh, stripped of their clothes. No one was killed on the West Coast, but a series of riots spread across the country. And In, in Harlem, where it finally came to a climax, there were 500 people hospitalized and five African Americans were killed on the streets of Harlem. So it did kill people. It was a single wave. But the thing is that here in L.A., what was left was the bitter memory of the invasion of the barrio, of the stripping of these young men, and consequently, it was a bitter pill to swallow, and uh, for 30 years, it lay dormant there until do the plate you remember?
2: Do you remember, when did you first hear of this tale, of this incident? Do you recall first how you learned about the Sleepy Lagoon incident?
1: Well, I, uh, personally, that I remember, yeah. uh, I read about it in North Mexico, Carrie McWilliams, the same... Mm-hmm. Head of the CPA Green. I eventually interviewed Terry McWilliams in, in his apartment in New York City, across the street from Columbia University. I tracked him down, and and he led me to Alice McGrath, to Alice Greenfield, the the, the one that had been the one one person that had been in contact with the guys in prison. So I found the heartline of the story. Also in 1968, when we were touring with the Teatro Campesino, I think we performed on this stage if I'm not <laughs> mistaken. But we used to come and go a lot. And in 1968, we were, uh, I think, at the Ash Grove and uh, and and Melrose, and someone handed me a copy of Guy Endor's pamphlet from 1944 called The Sleepy Lagoon Mystery, and said, You might be interested in this. I think it was his his wife. Uh And anyway, she she handed me this, and and I took it home, and I looked at this, and this is 1968. You know, this is Martin Luther King had just been assassinated, Robert Kennedy had just been shot down. And so it wasn't a time for me to contemplate sitting down and writing a play. But I looked at this and I said, this is powerful stuff. Look at these photographs. I said, this has got to become a full-length play. And I'll put it away and wait for the right time. That right time came nine years later when I was commissioned by the Marquette Perform to write a play about L.A. history.
2: And you, oh, So it was, it was just supposed to be about some, some aspect of L.A. history originally. Your choice. Yeah. It wasn't specifically about Zoot Suit.
1: Well, that was, uh, was when you think about it, that's really an outstanding chapter, you know, the only one you can really point to that has meaning, you know. There are other chapters. There's Christmas Eve, 1950 and 51, I think, when Bloody Christmas, you know, when the cops beat, uh, again, a number of Pachucos, Mm -hmm. uh, Bloody. Fred Ross, who was Cesar Chavez' mentor, told me about that because he was here in L.A. at the time organizing. But there were other, other stories before The Sleepy Lagoon, but The Sleepy Lagoon was the one that went national. The Sleepy Lagoon, because it hit the press and the media of the time, was the one that was responsible for creating a self-perpetuating stereotype of the gangbanger, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to go t- directly to that case and, and deconstruct it as a playwright, right? To, to, to essentially take the poison out of it. As we say in Spanish, sacar la ponzoña, you know, take out the stinger. And I did that in my own way through the character of the Pachuco, El Pachuco, you know.
0: You're listening to Luis Valdez with Oscar Garza. This is Socalo Radio, the on air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio.
1: Every day on All Things Considered, we bring you novel ideas and remarkable stories. This is really a new development.
0: Oh my God, I will never forget that. You can't teach that kind of stuff, you just have it. We can shock them a little too.
1: Something new, something unexpected, maybe even unforgettable on all things considered from NPR News. Weekday afternoon starting at 3:30 on 89.3 KPCC.
0: You already know how to get KPCC on your radio and your computer. Now you can get NPR and KPCC news on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org to learn about NPR Mobile from KPCC. You can get hourly headlines, news stories, or hear the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz, all whenever it's convenient for you. NPR and KPCC news on air, online, and now on the phone, too.
2: KPCC's fiscal year-end fundraiser is still short of the goal. When we reach that goal, we can assure no on-air fundraising until after the election in November. Join now at kpcc.org and thanks. Jill Price has a unique ability. Scientists say she has the most continuous and most automatic memory of any living person. But living with it isn't always a
0: gift, she says. But to remember, like, the end end of every relationship or, you know, anything... It's 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 hard.
2: I'm Neil Conan, the woman who can't forget. Join us next talk of the nation from NPR News, weeknights starting at nine on eighty nine point three KPCC.
0: I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the honor home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to Luis Valdez with Oscar Garza.
1: You asked me a question about Pachucos. I go way back with Pachucos, okay? <laughs> I asked him to repeat a story he told yesterday. It's a fantastic story. Yeah. You and had a cousin, Billy. Yeah, I had a cousin, Billy. I dedicated the play to my cousin, Billy. Now, I was six years old at the time, you know, and when I remember Billy as a Pachucos, 1946, 45, 46, and uh, Billy occasionally lived with us, we are all migrant farm workers, but this was in Delano, California, which was a bit of a crossroads. It's as urban as you get in the southern San Joaquin Valley, you know. <laughs> it's the big sort city. of Bakersfield, you know? <laughs> you know. But anyway, it was a hot spot, you know, on the west side, you know, where all the bars were. So there were a lot of pachucos on the corners, and my cousin Billy was one of them. He was a charming kid, good looking kid, very popular with the girls. But the thing is that he had a running partner by the name of Cece, and they used to come over to the house a lot, and here I am, six years old, looking at it, these. Well, Cessard wasn't any much taller than I am, you know, so, but to me, he looked like a giant. I was looking, boom, there he is, you know. You and, blew and, the punchline already. And, and, and <laughs> Go back. Go back. Ignore Go that, yeah. <laughs> what happened is... Yeah, that's right. You're right. I get it. Let me just say what happened to Billy. Billy, Billy died of Pachuco's death in 1955, 18 knife wounds to the chest, a violent death. His friend C.C. went to the Navy and uh, came back in 1946, 47 serving his country, having been in World War II, and uh, he, he came to the Delano Theater. The Delano Theater at that time, like movie houses all over California, were segregated. I don't know if you know that. I know that because I lived that. If you were Mexican or if you were African American, if you were Filipino, in some cases Japanese or Sikh, you had to sit on the sides. You couldn't sit in the middle. This was the white people. Now, this was not written in stone. This was uh, kind of acknowledged practice in California. So you didn't even attempt, if you weren't white, to sit in the middle section, the orchestra section. But CC went to the Navy and came back and uh, decided since he was on leave and still in the service that he deserved to sit in the front. So he went to the Delano Theater and sat in the, uh, in the middle section. And the manager came and tried to get him out and he wouldn't leave and so they called the cops. And the cops came, picked him up, took him to the local station and they grilled him for a couple of hours. And since there was no law that prevented anyone from sitting in the middle section of a movie theater, segregation was not instituted by law, was not set in stone, you know, by law. They had to let him go. And when the other young people in Delano saw that he was let go, the following weekend, uh, they all came and sat in the middle. (laughs) So from then that day on, the Delano Theater was desegregated, and that spread like a wave throughout the rest of California as the theaters then became desegregated all because of Sisi. Now, when I was going back to Delano, I told my mother, I'm going back to Delano, I'm going to join the United Farm Workers, and she says, oh, you're going to work with Sisi? And I said, Sisi? And she says, mijo, don't you know who Sisi is? I Cesar Chavez. Uh An old pachuco. (laughs) So these two pachucos, my cousin Billy and Cesar, Sisi, were my models. And so when I came around to writing Zoot Zoot, Suit, I wanted to invent a character that could essentially run the show. I didn't want a cop to run it. I didn't want a social worker to run it. I didn't want a psychologist or someone else, a criminologist, to run the show. I wanted the pachuco to run it. And so I gave my image of Cesar and Billy the power to snap the fingers and change the scene. OK? Now, beyond that, too, because the pachuco dressed in red and black, I take the meaning of the pachuco as I interpreted it which is the Dean of the School of Hard Knocks, you know, it's street knowledge, all the way back to its Aztec origins, because I'm a Chicano. So he is uh, in those colors, the red and black, Latinta Negri Roja, the red and black ink, He is an incarnation of the god Tezcatlipoca, who is one of the t- two magic twins. There's Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent, and there's Tezcatlipoca, okay, the smoking mirror. One represents daylight, the sun rising, Book learning, architecture, music, painting. The other represents the jaguar, night, the intuition. It represents really the depths of poetry, if you will, and, and the mystery of life. And uh, that's the dean of the school of Knox. So I dressed up the pachuco in the colors of Tezcatlipoca.
2: You, uh, you mentioned yesterday. <clears throat> get some water. I'll ask a long question so you can Okay, good. Natalie. You're chupi chupi. Go on. <laughs> You uh, mentioned yesterday offhandedly about being in high school and being involved in theater, which seemed to me to be an oddity for a young Chicano growing up in the central California Valley in the 1940s. Uh, and then tonight you told me, well, no, you were involved in theater from elementary school. on. Yeah. And I would imagine at some point your mother or father said to you, ¿Cómo te ocurrió? <laughs> You know, because of, and again, we talked about your college education. Uh, there weren't many Chicanos going to college at the time that you did. For someone born uh, in in Delano, outside of Delano, your parents were migrant farm workers. You had an atypical experience for hmm. that time. No.
1: Yeah, I suppose. How yeah. did that come about? Well, okay, you're going to force me to tell the taco story now, which is, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell it. it. This is how I got involved in the theater. My son's actually gifted me with a, a short film based on this experience, which brought me to tears some years back at a birthday party. But the thing is that I told them that story when they were growing up. It has to do with my life as a migrant farm worker when I was a kid. Again, about the time I met Cesar when I was six. So we used to go up and down the valley. We, we were here, actually, in 1943, you know, uh, when the Zoot Suit riots broke out according to my parents and then we left because of the violence in the city you know my parents had to go back up north it was safe it was a little safe (laughs) out in the field let's go back you know but in any case we were going up and down the state and and so we were uh, in 1946 in the fall we were uh, close to Corcoran in a large cotton camp and Corcoran is where uh, Charlie Manson resides there's a big state prison there now and Robert Downey was there and Juan Corona is there you know a lot of (laughs) distinguished guests California you know, all the, the state shame. of California. Yeah. Yeah. But in those days, I mean, there was no state prison. You know, they hadn't discovered yet how to turn prison building into a cottage industry, you know, the way a lot of these towns do, and do incarcerate and to fill it with Latinos and African Americans, you know. But in any case, we were there, and there were a lot of army surplus tents and uh, a lot of cotton pickers. The cotton fields were one of the places where I, I first recognized the equality of the human race, believe it or not, because in the early 40s, I mean, everybody was out there. We had everybody picking cotton. It was, hand, it was hand-picked. No machines yet. So African Americans, Mexicans, you know, Sikhs from India, even the, the Asians were out there. You know, Filipinos and uh, Japanese and Chinese, the Okies, you know, amazing. You know, white people were out there, and uh, everybody picking by hand. And so it seemed to me this was the world. You know, and obviously, so uh, with all those people picking, all this cotton crop just uh, went very quickly. So it was over by the end of October, and the people started to leave this big labor camp. It was by a town called Stratford which is close to Corcoran, and we couldn't leave because my dad's truck had broken down. He had a pickup truck, and it was up on blocks. He was trying to fix it, so we were running out of money, and, and really, we used to live hand-to-mouth, and so we were fishing in the river and eating uh, beans and tortillas. You know, my mother made flour tortillas and uh, eating fish in the tortilla. See, these were fish tacos before they were trendy, <laughs> you see? <laughs> and anyway... One, you'd, you'd you know, copyrighted <laughs> it or you know, something. Wow, man, yeah, yeah. it could have been... So one day, uh, I almost drowned you know, in the river, so my mother decided it was a good idea for us to go to school. And so my brother, older brother and I hopped on the, the local bus, used to roll in, went to a school, a little Stratford school. And uh, I knew I wasn't going to be there for very long. My prized possession, my focus was uh, a lunch bag. My mother had found a little brown paper bag. They were at a premium in 1946. There were still paper shortages. I didn't want to take my lunch in a CNH T&H, uh, sugar sack, uh, so I had this little brown paper sack. And I, my mother would put her tacos in there, you know? And there's nothing quite like mama's tacos, you know? Especially early in the morning when it's cold and uh, these flour tortillas are soft against you. It's, it's, it's all her love, you know? And I mean, I used to cradle, it was great. I'm on my way, you know? I'm going to school, you know? Voy a escuela, you know? And uh, anyway, so I used to put them in the closet and at lunchtime, I mean, we'd take them out. And that was another big experience for me because when I took out these tacos, uh, here are the Anglo kids and they have lunch pails, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, You know, and and these are metal things, and and they're embossed, you know, with with Hopalong Cassidy and, you know, and Mickey Mouse, and uh, (laughs) then they'd open them up, and and then they'd bring out these things, these two flat boards, you know, that look like they're they're white bread, right? And so, and and there was bologna and cheese and lettuce, and ooh, que la todo, you know what I mean? (laughs) And then an apple and a cupcake, and then the the kicker was the the thermos, you know? They'd open up a thermos, (laughs) And here, milk pours out, you know, and, and soda, and I mean, I was blown out, you know, I saw this. And, and then I look at my little sack, and it just got really, you know, it got sadder and sadder looking, you know. And, you know, tortillas are nice and plump and warm in the morning, but when they cool off, you know, se, se miran medios chateados, you know what I mean, they, they kinda look, they're kind of wrinkled, you know. So I was ashamed. I was awash with shame. I mean that here these kids have that, and I have this. so I used to eat my tacos like a wineo drinks his wine, you know, <laughs> one bite at a time, I'd slide it out, you know <laughs> up to the side, you know, and the kids would say, "What are you eating?" No, 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 you know. And they kept asking, and I you know, I was ashamed, but one day it was enough curiosity and looking back and forth, the inevitable happened. You know, we exchanged lunches. And the rest is Taco Bell history, you know. <laughs> so So one you day, got you missed out on the fish taco thing. Did. And somebody else steals the taco <laughs> bell, idea. From you. On top of that, forget <laughs> the not fast enough, you know. But what happened here's where I did win. You it's were that, destined
2: was, to run a nonprofit. <laughs>
1: Well, one day after school, I'm getting, going for my lunch bag to fold it. You take it back to my mom, and it was gone, you know. And the bus was leaving. I ran into a panic. A teacher saw me running around. She said, what's the matter? And I told her. And she said, oh, a little brown paper bag. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, I took it. And I said, well, give it back, <laughs> you know. And she says, I can't. And she took me into a little back room, and there was my bag all ripped up, floating in a basin of water. And I thought, yeah, oh, I thought she'd gone berserk. I said, well, you're loca, you're la maestra. And no, but she said, look. And then she reached in, grabbed one of them. Dipped it in some white paste and put it on a face. It was made out of clay. It was, it was a monkey. I said, "Whoa, look at this!" You know. And then she said, and "She did another one." I said, "Do you want to try it?" And I said, "Whoa!" Mm, you know. And I smoothed it out. And at that moment, I discovered one of the secrets of the universe. It's called papier-mâché. You know. <laughs> and I and I, it was a mask, obviously. And I said, "I knew Halloween. It was on November already." I said, "It can't be for Halloween. What is this for?" And she said, "It's for a play. We're going to have auditions next week." Are you interested? When you know. <laughs> the next week, I forgave her about the bag. I auditioned, you know, and, and damn it, I got one of the roles. You know what I'm saying? They You, needed you two... already
2: had this voice.
1: That, uh, yeah, just like this. <laughs> uh, they needed a monkey with a low voice, you know. <laughs> they needed two first graders. The whole uh, eighth grade, the band was involved. Anyway, I got involved in the Christmas play. I was in heaven. I mean, it, they started building the fake trees. It was an old beat-up auditorium, but I was, to me, it was Broadway. You know, this was it. And the fact is, to make a long story short, is that a week before we actually did this play, we were evicted from the labor camp. And uh, I told my mom, mom, I'm going to be in the play. And she said, mijo, there's no place for us to live, you know. So my dad stoically got the truck fixed just enough to get us home, and uh, we left. And I'll never forget seeing Stratford uh, recede into the fog, you know. Not Stratford on Avon, Stratford on the San Joaquin, (laughs) you know. uh, But I felt pain and a big hole in my chest ever since then, ever since then. And it has been 62 years, okay, I've been filling that hole, which is still there, with stories and plays and poems, and that's the only way that I've been able to survive. One of the lessons of my life then is how do you turn a negative into a positive? You, You deal with the hole, you know what I mean? You get creative. You go through zero. That became the mind zero for me, which is another story altogether. But I never knew who my teacher was. I spoke before a conference of superintendents a couple of years ago. The district from that district, a superintendent was from that district was there. He went back, he sent me a brick from the old school, which was about to be torn down, and a copy, a photostatic copy of the attendance record for 1946. And There at the bottom handwritten was Louis Valdez, little Louis, who had been in that school for exactly one month. So I tell teachers all the time, you never know who's in your class. I never knew my teacher's name until I saw that photostatic copy, and I saw that her name was Ruth Tremaine. I don't know where Ruth Tremaine is today. If she's still alive, she must be about 120 years old, you know. <laughs> but God bless her. God bless her because Ruth, with or without knowing, launched me on my lifelong career as a playwright.
2: You uh, mentioned to me backstage that when you went off to college at San Jose State, that you, you first year, you majored in the sciences, math and
1: math physics. And, math and physics. Yeah.
2: And then what happened?
1: <laughs> I kept walking through the drama building, you know, on the way to seven thirty class. You know, it was, but and I got. Well, I was hooked because of that whole. Oh, yes. Because I started writing plays when I was seven. I used to instead of playing regular games, I'd play it making plays with my cousins and my friends. And then they'd get bored, you know. No, we don't want to. And I said, you know, I have to insist, you know. And then they said, we don't know what to say. And so I said, well, say this, mira (Laughter) So that, that became a habit. Here, here are your words, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and so I kind of became a, a playwright, you know, without even knowing what was happening. And, and then when my friends wouldn't play with me, I started making puppets, you know, out of paper mache. They were easier. They were more cooperative. And I went through a whole thing. Became a ventriloquist there for a while, you know. (laughs) And uh, actually, I was on TV in 1956, live black and white TV. My family lived on a dirt street in San Jose, in the barrio, Salsi Puedes. But I was on television, (laughs) you know, every Sunday for five minutes. Anyway, by the time I got to college, I needed to get serious about my life, and I'd been a migrant farm worker. I loved the sciences, by the way, and I loved math. And, and so uh, that's how I got my scholarship. I went uh, in the math and sciences and I loved it. I, I really did. I still do. And uh, I've incorporated it into my work. There's no disconnect really between the sciences and the arts. I think that ultimately what we're all doing is doing research on the nature of the human being and the nature of life itself and the nature of life and death. You know, one of the lines from one of my recent plays is, is if death is real, anything is possible. So when you think about uh, loved ones that you have known and they're gone, or you see their lifeless body, uh, that's the ultimate mystery. You say, why is that now? What, well, how can that be? How can that be? And so that spurs a lot of other philosophical questions that we only I have only so much time to answer. So it seems to me that the connect between the sciences and the arts is an essential one. And it's part of the search for our own humanity.
0: You're listening to Luis Valdez with Oscar Garza. On Tuesday, May 27th, Socola presents Is Business Abusing the Ballot? Are large businesses able to buy policy with expensive ballot campaigns? What other forces, poor municipal finances, weak financing, the interests of lawyers and political consultants, may be contributing to these flights? A panel of political and government leaders who have been involved in ballot fights, including political consultants Rob Stutzman and Harvey Englander, Anaheim City Councilwoman Lori Galloway, and labor strategist and advocate, Madeline Janis, discuss the trend and its costs. It's moderated by Joe Matthews, Irvine Senior Fellow at the New America Foundation. Admission to this and all Socalo events is free, but reservations are required. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A aorg We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. I'm Marco Werman, the Lebanese government and the rebel group Hezbollah have stopped shooting at each other, but their civilian supporters remain armed and angry.
1: You know you have two million people that lived over here and you have uh, four million firearms so go figure everybody has weapons.
0: An uneasy truce in Lebanon next time on the world.
2: Weekdays at noon
0: on 89.3 KpCC. Is America ready for a black president? In novels and in movies, America's already had several black presidents, but Barack Obama could, might, possibly become the real thing. I'm Pat Morrison, and we'll be considering whether Americans are prepared to break with a long history of Dred Scott and Jim Crow to step up to Mr. President. You can weigh in on this, too. Go to kpcc.org and take the online poll. And listen here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m.
2: Programming on 89.3 KPCC is made possible by the WM Keck Foundation, supporting community-based organizations in Southern California and advancements in science, medical research, and higher education nationwide.
0: I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the honor home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to Luis Valdez with Oscar Garza.
1: I know that we have a lot of levels, you know, that we deal with ethnicity and that we deal with racism and all that jazz, you know. But ultimately, there are some very essential questions that connect all of us. And to me, that requires then to continue to do research. And so I'm really a writer, but I'm a a research scientist. You see what I'm saying? I don't look like a scientist,
2: but I am. Back in the uh, 80s, I was at a, a conference, at an arts conference uh, at which you spoke, and uh, something you said stuck with me all this time. It was a time when Latinos were trying to decide what to call themselves. Yes. One of the periodic times. Hey. Yes. And, and in this speech, you took up that topic and you said, I'm an American. I remember yes. you saying that. Not in any way to negate any of the other labels, but, but you, made a, you made a point of saying that. And then yesterday you were talking about Teatro Campesino and, and Teatro Chicano and you said, but you know, it's American theater. I've always wanted to ask you about that, about your ins- you know, that insistence that I guess people not forget that this is an American experience, that, that what you've gone through, what we've, what we've gone through. So talk about identity, talk about, talk about that a little bit if you would uh, and, and why that's important to, for you to state.
1: It's a big subject, as you know. Yeah, yeah and you're right. I think that the, the most all-inclusive term for me to describe myself and all of us really is American. I think that's it's handy. It's uh, it's general enough, and it's a, it's it's in, it's also it implies certain social concepts, a social contract that we all believe in, and uh, these are all stated in documents that we all know. But the fact is that this game that we constantly play in this country, we're playing it to this very second, about to name ourselves, uh, you know, racially, culturally. White, black, Latino, Asian, whatever. These are very superficial and very clumsy terms that we use. What, after all, is a white person? You know, they call Obama a black candidate. He's also a white candidate, isn't he? I mean, he's both. And any one of us that, that calls himself a Chicano is a product of the melting pot of the mestizaje. And so we've got white and black and Latino and Indian. All of that is mixed in. So it's, it's really awkward when you just reduce it to a single term. Uh, and the term Latino, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be a Latino. i glad to be a Latino, you know. It, I took four years of Latin. I'll be a Latino, you know. Uh. <laughs> but the fact is that the original Latinos were in Rome, you know what I mean? And they conquered half the known world. And, and they were all great lovers, you know, también. And so they left a few Latinos along the way, you know. All the way to England, they left Latinos. And so there's a lot of Anglos that... Uh, are Latinos also, you know, by virtue of genetics and, uh, and even cultural influence. So really when people talk about Latinos in America, in this country, they don't mean Romans. Surely, they're not talking <laughs> <Romans>. <laughs> they, they don't mean the world conquerors, you know. They, and when they say Hispanic, they don't mean the Spanish people of the Iberian Peninsula. You know, I have a, a Spanish film director friend who told me that when he came to New York, some friends advised him, be sure they don't call you Hispanic, be sure they call you Spaniard. <laughs> Big difference because Hispanic means Spanish flavored, okay? (laughs) You know, I mean, underneath it, you've got, you know, you've got jalapeno and it's rolled up, you know, it's rolled in Spanish flavoring. Okay, here's an Hispanic for you, you know? (laughs) Beneath the cover, there's something else. There's a creature that's born out of a huge melting pot. And our ancient ancestors did not call themselves by any one particular term, but some of them are really beautiful. The Maya used to call themselves, not even Maya, they call themselves Itzaes, which means drops of water. Which is kind of incredible, you know. And Mexicano, the Mexica, you know, who are the Mexica, you know, again, my Mayan master uh, teacher, Domingo Martinez Paredes, said it comes from Mexicano, which is a Mayan word, which means feathered serpent. That Mexico really means feathered serpent. So when you're identifying a Mexican, it comes a Mexican, it comes a feathered serpent. <laughs> you know, it's a concept, folks, and it, and things are not what they seem to be on the surface. So. How do you tie all that together I, when you break it down among all the different kinds of Latinos, Latin Americans that they are? You use the general term, and I think American is good. Yeah. And I say, I'm an American. I sing the song of America. My roots just happen to go back 10,000 years, okay? That's the difference. Uh, tell us uh, where El Teatro Campesino is
2: these days. One of your sons is now running the company, correct? What's the state of the company and, and, and what's your role with the company these days?
1: Well, I'm, actually, I have a, my wife and I, my wife Lupe and I have three sons, you know, and uh, one of them is Anahuac. He's a digital editor. He lives here in Los Angeles. And our son, middle son, Kinan, is he, uh, running the company, actually. He's virtually artistic director. I still hold the title because I'm still alive, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but he's, the real, he's the real operating director in the Teatro with a whole new generation. And then we have a third son who's teaching high school students in Berkeley, the theater, you know, and uh, political theater as it turns out. But the fact is that, you know, the Teatro Campesino continues to be where it was. Uh, it's on the front lines, you know, it's in the barrio, it's, it's with the people. We, we are still in San Juan Bautista, uh, we've been there since 1971. You know, how, how do you measure success? How do you measure progress? One of my uh, favorite jokes about this guy that started out as, uh, with a hand organ and a monkey and he became world famous and he just became very successful. The whole world was interested in his act. So now he's touring the world with a Hammond organ and a gorilla. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a little bit like the Teatro Camisillo was his hand (laughs) organ, you see? And I didn't wanna turn it into a Hammond organ and a gorilla, you know how it it becomes something else. Somebody has to be on the front lines. This is what Cesar Chavez used to tell us. If we all take off and pursue our own individual success, who's gonna be there? In, it keeps us honest but poor, but very vital, and we like it that way, and uh, we're training a, a third generation of teatristas now. And a lot of our people... <laughs> that does not mean that we have not trained other people to go the full board. They've become actors in the movies. They've become directors. They've even been in New York and, and gone to New York on both sides of the curtain, working backstage as well as in front. They, individuals pursue whatever career they wish, But they know that the front line continues to be where the poor people are. And I I think that in order to do poor people's theater, you have to remain accessible with very simple tools. The richness and the power of what you do is inherent in what you are saying you know, at the moment. And uh, a Sufi tale that we used to do, Peter Brook visited us over 30 years ago, and we did a Sufi tale where there was this princess whose tears would grant you immortality if you could grab them. And you had to grab them before they hit the ground because they turned to stone as they hit the floor, the ground. So everybody was always trying to get the tear. And that's kind of like the reality of doing theater with the Teatro Campesino. We have to remain fluid before the work turns to stone. Does that make any sense to you? And we're very happy uh, to do what we do. It keeps us alive. If you want to donate anything to the theater, <laughs> I mean, it's possible. But believe me, we are still at work and the work... It's extending now into a third generation whose parents were barely born when the teatro started, okay? We're there. Okay? Congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you much.
0: Now it's time for questions from the Socalo audience for Luis Valdez.
1: Hello. My, my name is Antonio Dominguez. I just want to say I love your films. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. And as a filmmaker and as a filmmaker that you know how it is to be poured and actually make a beautiful film, what do you recommend to filmmakers that are actually trying to achieve the same goals, they're trying to achieve the same dreams? What is your advice on achieving those dreams? Well, I think, I mean, you obviously have to be very persistent in what you're doing, you know, I mean, it's a battle out there, and, and just in order to get your thing done, and you run into every imaginable obstacle, but to get back to the essence of the film itself, you have to tell a story that helps. That's just my feeling. Is that it can be truthful, it can be it can even be violent, you know. I mean it can be it can have a lot of bitterness in it, but it must not be a bitter film. In the final analysis, it seems to me that the function of art is to leech out the bitterness from life. Life is bitter enough as it is. And our function really is to give hope. Now, it could be that you're the kind of filmmaker that is hopeless, you know, that has no hope. <laughs> then then what the hell are you doing making a film? You know, taking somebody you're hoping it'll make a profit or something, you know, at the very least. But the fact is that just the very act of creating is, is an act of hope in itself, so I urge all filmmakers to give us, uh, in one way or another, you know, give us, give us hope and an upending, and people will respond. That's why people go to the movies, you know. Uh, there's so many fine movies out there, production-wise, the acting, the shots, everything, you know, the, tech, the, the technical aspects are beautiful. But the human message is crap. Finally, it, it doesn't get us anywhere. And I think we all need, we all need to believe. But once we walk out of that theater, we need to believe in the next day, in the next moment, without being foolish, you know? Confident, uh, believing, pero no pendejos, you know what I mean? Just, just, <laughs> just go out there, but don't be fools. And I think it's, the filmmakers have that
0: responsibility. Hello, Luis. Uh, my name is Felipe Casuita. We were part of the UMAS that invited you back in 1967 to Cal State L.A. a long, long time ago. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about the evolution of Chicano teatro and theater. And I wanted to ask you also about the influence of Brecht on your theater work. And a little bit also, if you could discuss, if I remember correctly, the filosofia serpentino. Do you remember that?
1: I'm not getting every syllable of The what idea
0: you're of... The, the philosophy of the Serpentino, Tu Eres Mi Otro yo.
1: Yeah, well, the Brechtian part is, is, one is the social orientation that, that it, obviously political theater is a thing unto itself. For myself, I need, I'd like to believe that the theater is serving another purpose. Maybe it, it stems back to the anger of that six-year-old when my family was evicted from the labor camp, that it wasn't enough just to do theater, but I had to write that wrong because it was wrong that they kicked us out of the, uh, the labor camp. That's what kept me from being in the play. So that has kept me uh, political all these years in, in an odd kind of way. But the politics has to be reinterpreted in terms that people can embrace. When we were in, in Delano uh, in the middle of the grape strike, we were articulating thoughts and feelings that people needed in order to stay in the struggle. We weren't trying to prove how intelligent we were. We weren't trying to that, that, uh, prove that we were you know, more educated than the workers. We were, as a matter of fact, just trying to communicate very directly with the workers. And so that, that, that gave us a, a very simple but complicated task. Art is difficult because it has to be simple but complicated at the same time. What Brecht did is he introduced the idea of, of really trying to reach the audience past the, uh, the imaginary fourth wall, really communicating directly to the audience, which was anathema to some people. Uh, they didn't want to be bothered. They wanted the artist to be up here and kind of be untouchable, and the audience was not supposed to connect directly they supposed to kind of eavesdrop on what was happening on the stage. Well, Breck broke all that up. That, and then you mentioned Pensamiento Serpentino. Pensamiento Serpentino is a poem of mine that I wrote, but my philosophy, it's Mayan-based. It's serpentine thought. It deals with the indigenous philosophical concepts, not to be confused with serpents and devils, the way that the Spanish missionaries did. The serpent in the thought, is a sine wave. It's a sine curve, okay? And it's either a radio wave, and we're on the radio, or it is a light wave, or it is a microwave, you know? In other words, it is a wave as to be found in nature, the four kinds of waves. And so uh, all these symbols on the Aztec temples were not animals per se. They were symbols of a very abstract mathematical understanding of the universe. I don't know if you know superstring theory. That's the latest in, or heard of superstring theory, the latest in physics But it it ties in very directly with what we teach with respect to the Mayan zero, the power of zero, and the spiral, and the way that the human body moves. We are not disconnected from the way that the universe moves. Consequently, the word in in the Mayan culture for the human being is winiklil, which means vibrant being. We are the vibrating root of the universe, and when we vibrate, we form sine waves. It gets a little complicated. (laughs)
0: I won't repeat the situation of education in the state of California, but you as a young man of low income got an education and there was a critical teacher in your life. What would you do to change the state of education, particularly as regards the role of arts and theater arts in turning around the um, educational outcomes for young people, particularly low-income young people in this state?
1: I think the crisis in education today I don't want to pontificate, but I, I, I'm talking from personal experience. I've been a teacher for well over 40 years now. The crisis in education is not a question a lack of intelligence or a lack of resources. The crisis in education is a is a failure of heart. Okay, in order to teach somebody, you've got to love somebody. Okay. You gotta feel that these are, you teach your kids because you love them, you know? And and once upon a time in American schools, when we had white teachers and white students, that love was a lot easier (laughs) for obvious reasons. Now that we've got all these races and all these cultures, the love is a little hard, you know? It gets a little strained, you know? It's constipated, it doesn't flow. And and the the fact is that that that's what's behind the bilingual programs and, 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 you know, more Chicano culture and other cultures in the school. That's what it was about, just to show more love in the... You know, I have teachers that were never Chicanos and that were my English teacher. I'm still in touch with my English teacher. He wasn't a Chicano. His name is Ed Farrell. He's 80-some years old now. He lives in Austin, Texas. This is my English teacher. I'm still in touch with him. You understand, because way back in 1954, in 1955, this young man, who was in his thirties at the time, of Irish-American descent, showed me respect yes. and showed me love, okay, as a teacher. And I connected with this human being and I said, Mr. Farrell, tell him, teach me more. And he, he became my speech teacher. And as a matter of fact, I speak like him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so more recently, you know, I, I, I've seen him in Austin and in, I've had the absolute privilege of seeing him again after all these years. And, having dinner with him and my wife and I and his wife, and, and we talk about life and stuff, but you know, he's still a teacher, and, and I'm, I thank him. I've had the opportunity to thank him. But you know what? He's thanked me because he's read my works, and he said, I didn't understand Chicanos then. And, but you know, he understood enough because I have felt his love and his warmth. And you know Ruth Tremaine, the one that sent me on my journey as a playwright? She loved me. Okay? I knew the woman for a month. But she loved me enough to take me into that back room and to share a, a couple of real basic secrets with me. And so as a teacher, I remember her. And I remember my teachers, the ones that were kind to me. So that's how it starts. And, and so all these legislators and people are wondering, how do we resolve the educational problem? Well, we gotta love each other more. You know? We gotta show some more respect in the school. That's where it begins.
0: You've been listening to founder and artistic director of El Teatro Campesino, Luis Valdez, with Oscar Garza. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. The executive producer for Socalo Radio is Peter Stenshol. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in.